online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, wine faults. My guest is scientist, critic, and author Dr. Jamie Good. We'll talk about them all, from cork to eucalyptus taint, Brett to mouse, and he'll help us with the science behind those pesky issues how we can spot them, and why some faults are so subjective. How do you spot a faulty wine? What is causing it? And when is a fault not a fault? A heavily corked wine might be easy to identify, but what about that whiff of something that just isn't quite right? I can't be the only person to have endured a slightly awkward conversation with a staff member, very rarely a qualified sommelier, I should say, about why I want to send back a particular wine. Some faults are just crashingly awful, uh, mousiness being my number one. Uh, severe light strike in all its cabbagey horror is another. But others are far more difficult to pin down. And then there's the issue of subjectivity, of course. A bit of Brett, that's Brettanomyces, might be rather appealing to one drinker and downright disgusting to another. Uh, reduction can be similarly divisive. I don't mind confessing that on a trip to Chile a few years ago, I was halfway through uh, writing a broadly positive tasting note when the wine was declared faulty. Embarrassing. But that's the reality of the more subtle kind of wine fault. Well, there can be few who know more about those faults than Dr. Jamie Good, a scientist by training. He founded Wine Anorak and he's written umpteen books on wine science, including Flawless, uh, dedicated to wine faults. And most recently, uh, The New Viticulture, The Science of Growing Grapes. And it's a delight to welcome you back to The Drinking Hour, Jamie. Yeah, great to be back. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, there's so much to talk about. Before we do um, these common faults, you begin the book by declaring quite simply that wine is complicated, almost impossibly so. Uh, just explain what you mean. Well, the thing about wine is that we're dealing with a biological product. It's a product of fermentation. It's a microbiological product. But more than that, at the very heart of what makes wine interesting is the fact that it's so astonishingly diverse you've got this wonderful matrix of different places because grapes grown in different places invariably produce wines that taste different. You've got the, the sort of like the scale of terroir, the scale of these, these site-specific differences as well, ranging from a small plot to a whole region. And then laying on top of that, you've got the fact that every vintage is different. And so suddenly you've got this incredible array of flavours and tastes um, which may have their genesis in the vineyard. It might be the way that the wine's made. It might be decisions made by the wine grower about when to pick, or uh, you know, it might be whether there've been faults or um, sort of uh, you know threats during the growing season. You know, hail or, or abnormal temperatures, and then you know, 
the actual drinking consumption moment itself is, you know, we're all different. We're all a little bit different. Our biology is a bit different. And we each differ from day to day. You know, I might have a day where I taste a wine and it tastes fantastic. The same wine the next day I might not appreciate in the same sort of way because I've changed. So this makes wine astonishingly complicated. And that's what I mean. I think it's part of the appeal of wine is its complexity. But it's also for those who like to iron things out and have everything neatly pigeonholed wine must be incredibly frustrating yeah absolutely it's a beautiful complexity i mentioned a wine being corked and that is i guess probably the most well known the most famous of them all tell us um what's going on here so you know cork taint is is kind of um the the, the the one fault well it's not the only fault but it's one of the faults that when you can detect it it's always bad there's never a positive moment for cork taint. And what's happening is that corks are made from cork bark. They grow on cork trees in forests, largely in Portugal and Spain, but other places as well. And this bark is harvested. You know, if you look at a piece of harvested cork bark, it's not uniform. And um, there's all sorts of little holes and bits of imperfections, if you like, in the cork itself. And in those imperfections, you have all sorts of colonies of microbes and fungi and bacteria growing and during the cork production process um, some of these fungi are present um, they, they make a range of compounds um, including one that's called um, 246 trichloroanisole and um, which is um, um, you know you can, I don't want to get into too much detail but it's a, it, it's something we're incredibly sensitive to and it's got this very musty smell so if any of these these bugs are in that cork bark that's ended up in the neck of your bottle then there's a very good chance that even trace quantities of this T TCA molecule will have got into the wine. We can detect it at super low concentrations of around five nanograms, which is like, that's really, that's like um, a very, very tiny quantity per litre. So it's the same quantity as a couple of drops of this substance in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. We're exquisitely sensitive to it and it, it ruins the wine. It makes it go musty. And it was a huge problem in the 90s, especially because... And what happened is the numbers of wines that were bottled increased, especially because new regions took off. And so it went up to about 18 billion bottles a year. And at that time, there weren't any alternative closures. Cork was the only closure. So the, the forests were stretched. The quality level went down a bit. And the increase in contamination meant that there was almost a crisis in Australia. For instance, there are estimates that between 7 and 10% of all wines were damaged by the cork, either through um, oxidation or through, um, you know, cork taint. So that led people to move away from cork as a closure towards alternative closures, which is why today we've got a range of different closures, sealed bottles, ranging from natural corks to technical corks, which are corks that have been cleaned up, made of little fine granules of cork and then glued back together again without taint, um, through to synthetic plastic corks, which had a good moment, but which now are on the decrease, um, to screw caps, which are widely accepted and are, are dominant in some countries like New Zealand and Australia. And so, yeah, cork taint has been a real problem. And, and it's the, the rise of the screw caps in particular scared the life out of the cork industry and they've tightened their act up significantly. So your chances of getting a cork tainted bottle now are much less than they were 20 years ago. Yeah, very occasionally I come across it still, but it's much rarer than it used to be. Yeah, you're so right about it being rarer these days. If you went to a country like New Zealand, they might just say, well, just use screw caps. Don't use cork. Yeah. And in some ways, for many wines, I think it's a great option. But the, the, the complex thing here is that the nature of the closure actually affects how the wine develops. 
after it's been bottled. And this is a very complicated area to, to delve into, so I'm a little bit scared to. But I'd say that some people prefer the way that wines taste when they're aged under cork, because corks are good cork, that is, you know, without any taint, because corks aren't completely neutral. They release small quantities of compounds called phenolics that then affect how the wine ages. And also they have certain properties about how much oxygen they'll allow in. Very, very little, but just tiny amounts. Whereas a screw cap with a, a metal lining in the, in the, in the lid, a tin sarin lining, they call it, that basically is in, pretty much inert, doesn't allow any oxygen in. And so, so, so some wines taste a little bit different depending on which closure has been used. And, you know, so we're talking like small differences, but they exist. So mm. I think, yeah, screw caps are great. I, uh, I drink a lot of screw cap wine. I actually quite like cork because the way that the wines develop under them, I think, can be quite interesting. But then it's only some wines. Other wines develop much better under a screw cap. It's a fascinating discussion. It is. Uh, And it brings us neatly on to, you mentioned it just then, oxidation. Yeah, so oxidation is, um, during winemaking, there are periods when you want oxygen around. Like, for instance, during fermentation, it's good to have oxygen around because yeasts thrive on oxygen. And what you find is that fermentation is going more more smoothly when there's oxygen. But as fermentation slows down, you gradually want to reduce the amount of oxygen that wine sees. And wines are usually aged in either stainless steel or oak, or it may be concrete or maybe clay. And each of these containers allow different amounts of oxygen in, which affects the way the wine develops. So basically, you start off with this macro oxidation, where the, the wine sees lots of oxygen early on, and then you slow it down. You maybe eliminate the oxygen altogether. And then when it comes to bottling, you've usually got to be very careful not to allow any oxygen in um, when the wine is bottled, um, because that um, causes oxidation. But there's a difference between oxidation and oxidative winemaking. And some wines are made in an oxidative style where oxygen has been used during the winemaking process. Yet they're not oxidised, they just have developed in certain ways. And so some wines, I'd say, are oxidated, they deliberately use oxygen to forge that wine style. Other wines basically are made in what's called a reductive way and you're keeping oxygen away and you want to keep the fruit, you want to keep things really fresh. Um, So oxidation is a fault where oxygen has come in contact with the wine in a way that wasn't intended. And then basically what happens is it strips all the fruit, it changes the colour, so white wines go to orange, then to to brown. Red wines, they lose their brightness and they get like brick red around the edges. If you hold the glass up, to a piece of white paper, you'll see this bricking of the rim. Oxidation is where you've had too much oxygen at the wrong time and you've lost all that quality that the wine originally had. Obviously, there are exceptions. There are some wines that are deliberately oxidised. Madeira is a great example. Or Oloroso Sherry or Tawny Port. They're kind of slightly, they're pretty oxidised. So they don't mind seeing oxygen later on. And they last, once you've opened the bottle, they last a good while because they've already seen lots of oxygen. But most wines don't, don't really want to see oxygen after they're bottled. Um, we and, sat uh, uh, enjoying in uh, San Luca uh, next to each other, enjoying some yeah, uh, delicious yes. oxidative winemaking, didn't we? That was fun. Yeah. Hidalgo Lagatana, wasn't it? Great trip. That's right. Yeah, yeah, really good. Anyway, that's a diversion. So is this, I suppose. But there was a big issue in Burgundy with oxidation that shouldn't really have happened, often referred to as, as premox. What was going on yeah. there? So what happened is you've got this style of wine, which is white burgundy, um, which is supposed to be a wine that you can sell for 20 or 30 years and develops really beautifully. And then in 1990, from the 1996 vintage, some people think from the 95, but mainly from the 96 vintage onwards, what people noticed that um, you'd get this sort of random oxidation of these wines much earlier than you'd expect. So 
you know, you'd open them at five years and in a case, seven of them would be good and five of them would be completely oxidized. And so they call that premature oxidation. And they couldn't really work out what it was that was making these wines really fragile. Some people thought it was the cork. Some people thought it was using paraffin as a lubricant to get the corks in and out more easily. And that, that was allowing oxygen in. And other people, they came up with all sorts of theories. And I think the most plausible one is that there have been changes in the pressing. So they've been protecting the wine from oxidation and the juice from oxidation before fermentation and what that means is that you get phenolics which are compounds which are, need to be present for oxidation to occur were persisting from the juice into the wine whereas normally the old-fashioned way in the pressing you'd allow oxygen to come into contact with the juice and the juice would go like a brown color which was alarming if you didn't know what was going on but was what was actually happening is that the phenolics were oxidizing early on so they weren't present in the wine after fermentation and those wines were much more robust so this change of pressing, I think the warming climate meant that the, the grapes were, you know, had less acidity when they were being picked and acidity is a preservative, helps sulfur dioxide work better because sulfur dioxide is what's added to help prevent oxidation of wines as well as to control microbes. And the other thing was that they were using less sulfur dioxide. In the old days, they'd used quite a lot and then more modern people were thinking, well, let's use less. And so all these things together created this perfect storm and suddenly you'd find these wines you know, that, that would start oxidizing early. And it's probably likely that the the cork, the variation in the cork, because this is the time when cork was going bad in the, the, the mid to late 90s, was then exposing that vulnerability. But you might have seven quite good corks and five not so good corks. So you'd see in the, the case, the five not so good corks would expose the vulnerability of the wine, they'd just oxidize, whereas the others would still be okay. And I think it's still around a bit. I mean, these wines are maybe... White Burgundy now isn't something maybe you'd sell it for 20 years, maybe you'd sell it for five to 10 years. But there was never a definitive solution to this problem. Really interesting. And by the way, another brief diversion, where are you on sulphur dioxide? It's a really useful winemaking tool, I think. Um, it's something that, you know, if you want to make wine and you want it to be microbially stable and you want it to not, not to oxidise, sulphur dioxide is a really useful thing to have. But... I'm also I've also been really enamored by some of the wines made by natural wine growers who haven't used any sulfur dioxide in the élevage and in the growing up of the wine, maybe just a little bit of bottling. And often you get a very interesting texture and feel of the wine as long as it hasn't got faults. It's like I guess you say it was like um, someone who's walking a tightrope without a safety net. You know, if you're trying to make wine without sulfur dioxide, you don't have that safety net to catch you if something goes wrong. So if something goes a bit amiss, then it can go really amiss. Um, so I think I'm not one of these people who say, I don't think sulfites are bad for our health at the level they're used in wine. I think they're quite safe. I think most people who re have adverse reactions to wine, it's probably not the sulfites. It's just that they see on the label, it says contains sulfites. It's probably something like biogenic amines or histamines that, that are causing the problem. Um, mm -hmm. But I will admit, you know, knowledge that some people who are asthmatic, that sulfites are probably best avoided as much as possible. You know, that's 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 certainly true. But these days, the levels used in wine are quite tightly controlled. In the old, in the 70s, you know, if you went to, took a German wine from the 70s, they often survived brilliantly because the level of sulfur dioxide was added. The bottling was astonishing. So that they're kind of immortal wines. It's just if you drank them young, you'd probably have a, a coughing fit, you know, because of the the levels of sulfur dioxide were, were very high. Oh, so I think sometimes, sometimes sulfur dioxide gets a bad rap, whereas I think it's actually quite a useful thing. 
Yeah, I was given a, my birth year is 1972, and I was given a German wine at a, a, a cooperative winery from the year of my birth, which, as you all know, is one of the worst vintages of the 20th century, unfortunately. And it was actually, uh, it was it was pretty good. And I, it, maybe it's that um, high use of sulfur dioxide. Yeah, yeah. Plus, plus acidity level that's off the scale, because obviously, you know, when the pH is very low, which means the acidity is very high, the sulfur dioxide is much more, it works much better. Than, than when the pH is higher. You need less of it. So, yeah, with a combination of really, really low pH plus a generous dose of SOT, the wine's going to live a long time. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Brett, because um, a lot of Australians that I've uh, assessed wines alongside get really worked up about uh, Brettanomyces. I don't know if it's um, fair to say that they are uh, more obsessed with it than um, uh, other countries. I, I simply don't know. But I've, I've certainly had a, a lot of debate. I, I remember first thinking, who is this Brett that they keep referring to when I was first uh, into wine? But tell us about Brett. So, yeah, it's, it's a yeast um, that's present. Most wineries will have some of it around. It's not like this. Um, it, it kind of comes in on the grapes. And if the conditions are favourable for Brett, then there's a chance it will grow. And when it does, it creates these sort of um, what you could call off flavours. So they start off being sort of a little bit spicy, quite complex, a little bit phenolic. And then they move towards sort of animal sheds, farmyards, and they get kind of stinky. Um, So these compounds that Brett produces are are, are slightly deviant tastes, but in small levels, they can be quite a nice seasoning. The challenge is, though, is how do you control it? And so a lot of techno winemakers are terrified of Brett and certainly you're right and when you go to judge wines in australia or new zealand if anything's got even the slightest hint of brett it's kicked out straight away but um, i remember my friend sam harrop who for his master of wine dissertation did a study on syrah and brett and what he did is he got together some of the world's most famous syrahs got a group of us to taste them and to say whether we thought the wine was bretty or not and then he did an analysis of all these syrahs for a compound called 4-ethylphenol. And the 4-ethylphenol is kind of a, it's, a, it's, a, it's only produced by Brett. It's one of the flavour compounds that Brett makes, but it's, and it's one of the most pungent. It's very spicy and phenolic. But it's a sign that you've got Brett if you've got 4-ethylphenol in the wine. And some of these famous wines, um, you know, super famous wines, very expensive, had above threshold levels of Britannomyces. So there are many, many famous wines that do have Brettanomyces. So if you dismiss all those, then it's kind of it's problematic. I don't think we can deal with Brett that easy, just to say it's always bad. I think Evan Sadi joked to me once about Brett because he'd had some problems with Brett when he was doing 100% whole bunch ferments with some of his wines. And he said, it's like Brett. He says, you know, I don't mind it in other people's wines, but I don't want it in mine. You know, <laughs> if it's there, it can be interesting. But really, as a winemaker, you would try to do everything you can to avoid it. You know, it's not so simple sometimes. You know, it's it's there. There are things you can do to reduce the chances of Brett, but you can't always guarantee that you're not going to have any Brett in your wine because it's just a wine's a natural product. You know, I personally am not a massive fan of wines. Once you get the taste of Brett, it's like um, it kind of masks the terroir, the place a little bit, and it makes the wines taste all a little bit similar. It's not a horrible taste. It can be quite nice, but it, it's it's just that I, I prefer it if I can taste the place in the wine. Um, so generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan, but also I'm not a, a Brett police person. I won't be going around looking for it deliberate. And if I find it, then I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll disqualify the wine. I think it's got to be done on a case-by-case basis. And as you said at the beginning, it's often a matter of taste as well. Yeah. 
Well, that brings us to volatile acidity, which some people seem to be much more sensitive to than others. Yeah, so VA, as we call it, is a kind of combination of compounds, but the main one's acetic acid, um, so vinegar, and the other one is ethyl acetate, which is kind of like nail polish remover. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, the fractions of each vary. Personally, I think the acetic acid bit is more pleasant than the um, nail polish remover. It's there in wine, and basically, as, especially in red wines, um, as the, you know, as whenever the wine sees air, these, these acetic acid bacteria are going to start multiplying and growing. So you've got to be really careful during winemaking. The levels don't creep up too much. At a certain level, it's quite, it adds a bit of complexity. And you won't spot it at that level. It just adds a little bit of complexity. Um, but once it goes over a certain threshold, and that threshold differs for each person, it's sort of objectionable. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, and often it's found alongside oxidation. So sometimes it's hard to separate the two because you've got a slight oxidation plus some VA. But another thing I'd say about VA, it gives it this sort of, it's a sweet sort of acid experience. So when you taste it, you taste the acid, but it adds a sort of sweetness to the fruit as well. You know, VA is one of those things that it can be complexing, but you've got to be so careful with it. Um, in sweet white wines, often the level's a bit higher. So if you get Sauterne, you'll often have a little bit more VA and it seems to work better then. But yeah, some people really hate it. And personally, if I spot it, I don't like it. But I'll also admit that there are times where it's, it can be at a decent level, but I don't spot it because it kind of fits in with the wine. It adds a little bit of complexity. Talking of things that we hate, if there was a, a kind of comedy sound effects department here at uh, Food FM, there would be a thunderclap at this point because my big hate is mousiness. Yeah, mousiness is a, it's disgusting. It's, and it's a fault that kind of didn't really exist until natural wine came along. And then you go to the natural wine fairs and suddenly you learn all about mousiness, which is a lot of people don't realise, but you can't actually smell mouse. Um, when, you, when you take a glass of wine, you sniff it. You can't smell, even if it's mousy, you can't smell it. It's once mm. it's in your mouth, what happens is your mouth changes the pH of the wine because your mouth is um, less acidic than the wine. So the wine rises in pH and then the compounds these tetrahydropyrrolines that cause the mousiness suddenly become volatile and you kind of smell them around the back of your nose in retronasal olfaction. So mousiness is one of those things. You taste the wine, you think this is really nice. You sniff it, taste it, and it's really nice. And then a few seconds later, oh, mouse. And it's such a shame because a lot of the really cool natural wines, you know, occasionally they get hit by mouse, you know, and it, it, it's, it's very difficult to stop. Um, if you're deciding to make the wine without adding any sulfites. And it's not predictable either. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And then there's a time element. So sometimes you open a bottle of wine, you start drinking it, it's delicious. And then like after 40 minutes, suddenly the exposure to oxygen that that wine's had means that suddenly your, your, your mouse has come back over threshold again. I don't exactly know how it happens, but it does seem to do that. The oxygen effect on it can make what's otherwise a non-mousy wine become mousy. And mm. then the other thing is that we all differ in our thresholds for mousiness quite markedly to the point that some people, and I've seen suggestions that maybe it's around a third of people, just don't get mousiness at all. So they're the lucky ones. Aren't they just? Yeah, I was assessing wines with the uh, Master of Wine, Alistair Cooper, who you will know well, and he had a kind of 
comedy convulsion at, at this hideous, um, actually Italian, um, I think, sparkling wine that was seriously mousy. And of course, what you've just said rather explains that. He, he didn't see it coming because it's going to yeah. happen afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Once it's in the mouth, yeah. Bang. Ooh. And it's a few seconds yeah. later. Ooh, and if so you're not... tasting wine very quickly, you might you might miss it on one wine because you've tasted and spat it out and then you've not given it time. So that's that's another thing. It's a nasty one, as is light strike, especially when it's really bad. And I used to just think that cabbage equaled light strike. But it was um, Essie Avila, another master of wine, who, who's really obsessed with light strike. Um, uh, she gave us a kind of mini masterclass on light strike. And it's actually really very nuanced, isn't it? It's not always massively obvious. I guess it's something you can do at home. You can take two bottles of, especially sparkling wines are more susceptible to it than, than still wines, but take two bottles of sparkling wine in clear glass, keep one in the dark, leave the other one outside for a couple of hours in the sunlight, and then taste them together. And then you'll get to understand what's meant by light strike. I think that's the that's the way to do it. It's just a bit like, it's almost like I think a lot of people drink light struck wine without realising it because and- they're buying wine that are susceptible and you know these days especially pink wines because people love putting pink wines in clear glass um so the simple solution is not to bottle in clear glass and english sparkling wine scene have been really good so basically they've encouraged each other not to use clear glass for their wines and if no one's using clear glass then no one gets that marketing advantage from bottling pink wine in clear glass um so that's the way to do it i think and clear glass is actually an environmental nuisance as well, isn't it? Because it requires virgin glass. They can't use recycled, can they? Yeah, good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a bugger. So hopefully producers can be persuaded to, uh, to move away from it. Let's talk about some of the taints next, because we've become horribly familiar with the concept of smoke taint because of climate change and the proliferation of forest fires. Um, how does this work? So basically, if, if at the right time of the season or the wrong time of the season, you know, when the grapes are already developing, there's a forest fire nearby and the smoke gets into the vines what happens is the smoke can diffuse into the tissue of the vine. And obviously here we're, we're, we're concerned about the, um, the bunches of grapes because that's the, what's going to be used to make the wine. And what happens is that it gets into tissue and the, the, the vine, the plants respond by adding a sugar molecule to the smoke taint molecule. It's called glycosylation. And they do that to protect themselves. So they're detoxifying these, smoke, these compounds in smoke. So what happens is when you harvest the grapes, you don't know whether they're tainted or not. You can crush them and smell the juice. You can't smell the smoke taint. It's only when you've had a little bit of fermentation activity that the glycosylation is removed and these smoke taint molecules reveal themselves. So they give this sort of um, salami, um, smoke, ash, charred sort of smell to a wine. And, and it's not very nice it's really not very nice so if you think about the german rausch beer you know that's deliberately made with smoked smoked malt um and or, or you could think about um Islay whiskey which has that peaty bonfire character well in those situations people like the smokiness but when it comes to wine it's just nobody likes it i mean some of the some of the californians have tried to call it not smoke taint but smoke impact removing the taint word um, with the implication that some people might choose to drink these wines and they're not tainted, they just taste smoky. Uh, but I think pretty much everyone who tastes them doesn't like them very much. And I was in a, a lounge in in San Francisco and I 
tasted this Oregon Pinot Blanc. I thought, this is, looks like a quite a serious wine to be in the, the lounge, you know, because lounge wines aren't so good these days. But Paul was have a glass, and I just, and it was 2020 when they'd had loads of smoke um, taint in Oregon, but I'd forgotten all that. I didn't, you know, remember which vintages were affected. And I tasted it, and I go, wait a minute, what's this? And, ah, oh, it's smoke tainted. Um, and it's really, it's not something you tend to encounter all that much, because very few people will sell their wines that are noticeably smoke tainted. But this one obviously got through. And it's unpleasant. And so wineries have been looking at ways of treating the the grapes or treating the the must um, or treating the wine to get rid of the smoke tank. The problem is any intervention that really removes these compounds also takes a lot of other stuff away. So it's a, a very difficult thing to manage. And one thing is to have very small, short maceration if you think that the grapes might have had smoke taint. Um, the other thing would be to think about barriers. If this is going to be a, a fire, that's one of the thoughts is using kaolin, which is a, a clay, which is used in vineyards to protect against too much sunlight or heat. And there's some evidence that you could apply the kaolin and that would prevent some of the smoke getting into the plant tissues. Um, but there's a lot of work going on on this because, um, first of all, you know, how do you deal with it? How do you prevent it? But secondly, are there markers that can be used by laboratories to determine whether grapes are smoke-tainted or not before they're picked? Especially if people are buying the grapes, they don't want to buy the grapes, then make some wine and then have to do a claim against the grower um, for the fact that the grapes are smoke-tainted. So, you know, you can imagine the court cases that, that come up here, it can be quite complicated. And so if there was a, a, a really simple marker you could get that you could test for, um, then then you could assess whether a crop is affected or not before you start making wine from it. As someone who's been around in wine for quite a while, uh, longer than I have, certainly, um, is smoke taint a relatively new phenomenon? No, it's been around for a while, but it's just that the level it seems to be, you know, like um, the, this year in the Okanagan, they got hit again. It just seems to be happening more often. It's like, it's like, um, it's like frost. You know, there's always been frost in vineyards, especially places like Chablis, but um, now there's more frost. Now there's more hail. There's more extreme weather events, and so it's you know it's creating a lot of challenges um, for growers. Sobering eucalyptus. Um, I quite like a little bit of eucalyptus, but it tends to be in my bath oil, really, not my wine. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is a compound called cineol, which smells like you know if you've ever walked near a eucalyptus on a hot summer's day, it's a very distinctive smell. Um, slightly minty, um, fresh sort of smell. And it's very prevalent in Australia, especially because there's lots of eucalyptus trees growing near vineyards. And um, it can get there through the oil landing on the grapes. Obviously, that's a sort of direct terroir effect, but also from leaves getting into picking bins, apparently. That's that's quite a common way of getting cineol into the wine. And they've done quite a lot of studies in Australia. And there's a subset of consumers who actually like um, minty eucalyptus-affected um, wines. Um, so... For low levels for Cabernet Sauvignon, it can really add a nice freshness and it can be quite pleasant. And at high levels, it's divisive. Some people love it, some people hate it. Um, so eucalyptus is an interesting one. Um, and it's not—it's one of those ones where it, it's, it's not easily dismissed as being a fault all the time because some people prefer the wines with it than without it. And that brings us neatly on to another um, subjective one, which is reduction. Our reduction is fantastic. I mean, it's a little bit of a misnomer, and I think that that puts people off. So it's the presence of volatile sulfur compounds in wine. And there's a whole raft of these compounds um, that usually occur during fermentation. 
So what they are is they're um, reduced sulfur compounds. So we talked about sulfites earlier. Well, they're oxidized sulfur compounds. So sulfites aren't the same as as these these um, volatile sulfur compounds, which are, are reduced. So like sulfides would be. Then the classic one is H2S, which is hydrogen sulfide. Smells of eggs um, and drains. It's not very nice. It's produced by yeast during fermentation when they're struggling a little bit. Um, often it blows away. It's quite volatile. So early stages of fermentation, you might get a bit of H2S, that eggy smell, nothing to be alarmed about. It's when it becomes more complex sulfides that stick around in the wine, then you can have some problems. Um, so some of them are quite, you know, cabbagey, um, cooked corn, those sorts of aromas, not so nice. But there's a subset of them that are really interesting. One's called benzene methanthiol, which gives a little flinty matchstick reduction character um, that can be very attractive in some wines. Um, there's also a group of what's called the polyfunctional thiols. Um, so these compounds like 3MH, 3MHA and 4MMP. Um, they're abbreviations. I won't spell out what they are. I'm not sure I'd be able to remember all the, the, the exact bits anyway. Um, but they're very important in the aroma of certain wines, especially Sauvignon Blanc. So they can smell of, um, of grapefruit and passion fruit, um, these tropical exotic fruits, and a bit of um, boxwood as well, which is 4MMP. And they're really important in Sauvignon Blanc flavour, especially Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand. And so there's been a lot of work going on and what creates these. They're made by yeasts during fermentation from precursors, and they're very attractive. They're also present in Saturn as well. So in Saturn, a lot of that very exotic, um, fruity character in a young Saturn can come from these polyfunctional thiols. And there's some evidence that they might be involved in the aroma of Cabernet Sauvignon too. So reduction is, is, a, is one of those fascinating ones because, you know, you've got, elements of these volatile sulfur compounds where you know you really don't want them and others you'd quite like to have and so there can be some quite interesting challenges for winemakers who'd like to have say for instance a little bit of that matchstick reduction in their um in their chardonnay you know how do you do it and how do you make sure that you end up with matchstick reduction and not some sort of other sort of like compounds that might smell of vinyl or plastic or 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 drains or or you know cabbage so it's a, it's quite a challenge and it's really interesting i think um to to delve into these compounds and also champagne aroma um champagnes that have you know the, after aging for many years on the lees um champagnes can often have these very interesting toasty um characters and some of those are volatile sulfur compounds too so this is an area of intense research at the moment and people are really um intrigued by how you know, these these compounds can be marshaled in the best way to produce good results and not bad. Yeah, because you mentioned there, um, you know, it, it can. Uh, I'm thinking here of, of Kumu, actually, Michael Brakovich. And mm. White. Mm. Um, he's the master of reduction, isn't he? Totally, yeah, totally. And so one of the ways they do this is solids. During So when you're pressing Chardonnay, whole bunch pressing, um, normally what people do is they press, they take the juice and they settle it and... Um, they've all got to decide they decide how clean they want the juice to be um, and so one of the things that can encourage this reduction is is to have slightly dirty juice so you've got juice lees suspended in the juice that then when you go to barrel um, this kind of prompts the yeast to do some things that can often result in in some of this struck match character um, but what Michael if, if he still does it when I visited a few years ago what he was doing was going pressing settling maybe a little bit but then when the lees he wanted to juice lees he wanted to keep, he'd stir it all when he went to barrel. So each barrel would get the same amount, 
which is quite clever, rather than, you know, just going straight to barrel from the press where some barrels will be quite dirty and others will be cleaner. It's, it's kind of like spreading out the lees to try and encourage all the barrels to produce just a little bit of this spicy matchstick flinty reduction. Yeah, very clever, as you say. Um, you talk, um, there's a chapter in uh, Flawless that's uh, uh, dedicated to uh, when a fermentation goes wrong. And, and this is specifically around the process of uh, malolactic fermentation, isn't it? Yeah, I can't remember. Which chapter is that? Oh, it's, it's in the it's in the uh, it's in the index. I just I was struck by, uh, but there are those faults I expected to find in the index, and then there are those yeah. that surprised yeah, me yeah. slightly. And what would go wrong with mallow specifically? Well, there's quite a lot of things that can go wrong with it because this is the bacterial fermentation that takes place in all pretty much all red wines, and it's a stylistic choice in white wines. But the main problem there is if you've got the wrong bacteria doing that fermentation so if you do a wild malolactic fermentation you've got to hope that the bacteria who do it are good ones and not bad ones because some of them can produce some quite deviant flavors and there's also a very common flavor produced by these um, lactic acid bacteria that's called um, um, diacetyl which smells buttery a little bit of that can be quite nice but if you've got quite a lot of it it makes the wine taste all dairyish and rancid and it's mm. i don't like it at all i really don't like that Basically, that's that's about the, you know, hoping you're going to get good um, lactic acid bacteria doing the work in the because um, they can produce quite a few flavor compounds. And often, I guess, with whites, it's more noticeable. The reds, there's lots of other stuff going on. So you might not notice the contribution of the lactic acid bacteria so much. Certainly with white wines, they can make quite a, an, an impression. So, yeah. And also they can produce volatile acidity as well, which is a problem. Yeah. Which we mentioned uh, earlier. Yeah. It's a measure of um, how much you write, how prolific you are as an author that uh, I was, uh, I'm talking about a book that came out first in 2018, I believe, although it's still very much available. And uh, as you've demonstrated, is full of really interesting, useful information. But your, um, you must, I, I had to call it, I had to say umpteen books earlier, because I wasn't quite sure how many books um, you have written. I'm not sure you even know how many books you've written, actually. Oh, no, I'm, I keep forgetting. It's it's quite fun to rediscover them, actually. <laughs> I bet. And the latest is about uh, the new viticulture, the growing of uh, grapes in this day and age, basically. Yeah, that's a, it's a book I really enjoyed writing. And it's kind of lots of these books kind of ferment for quite a few years because, you know, I've been traveling lots. And every time you travel to a new place, you learn new things. You ask new questions, you see different different climates, different vineyards, different soil types, different grape varieties, different approaches. And it's like, and as you kind of, over a, few, a period of maybe two or three years, you're actively gathering material for a new book. And so you're on the lookout to see what's going to go in. And then, so when it comes to putting it all together, it's it's actually great fun because it's a synthesis really of, of um, lots of people's knowledge um, yes, some science that's in the published literature, but also just uh, speaking to wine growers and seeing what they do, because a lot of science isn't ever going to end up in a scientific journal. Um, it's the trial and error work that's being done by people whose livelihood depends on doing things right, you know. So they're, they're, they're doing little trials all the time. They're observing. And that's the sort of science that gets ignored sometimes with the more academic books on wine science. And my approach is to take the science um, yeah, we want to learn from what the scientists are doing, but also we want to integrate in that um, what the growers are doing, you know, what they're doing in their vineyards 
what they've learnt from their work in the vineyards, and then trying to to kind of marry the two together, and and make it understandable and interesting, and ask really interesting questions that sometimes other people maybe aren't asking. You know, and so I've got lots of chapters in there that, that I haven't written anything else about elsewhere. I saved it for this book, and um, there's a lot of very current work, and there's a lot of new research that's reported there that's totally current um, so that's one of the things i'm really happy about um it's super up to date because i've been traveling so much and the evidence here is empirical yeah um it's it's a mixture it's, it's empirical and it's also you know stuff to where studies have been done you know i, I think viticulture is is so interesting and my background was plant science so i i, I do love you know looking you know using my training as a science guy um, to apply that to this field of viticulture is really interesting for me. And we're all the better for it as well. I'm not a scientific person at all. I was um, hopeless at it at school. The way you communicate things is um, is, is so relatable. So um, thank you for doing that. And thank you for giving us um, not quite an A to Z, because uh, that would be a bit contrived, but uh, certainly a very comprehensive uh, guide to uh, wine faults, Jamie. No, it's, it's fun to chat. And thank you for your excellent questions. Um, that makes my job a lot easier. Oh, bless you. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. So let's round off as ever with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And this week, our focus is on some spirits that shone at the IWSC in 2023 and to Japan, first of all. Its whiskies have been taking the world by storm in recent years, of course, and also the awards this year too, because this won a trophy, one of the best in show, as well as a prestigious gold medal. Shibui Whiskey Company, 10-year-old pure malt. Overseeing judging was Dawn Davis, MW, and on this panel, Ortis Dealey, the... Uh, co-host of the awards ceremony this year for the IWSC and also James Phillips and uh, Matthias Luciani and their tasting note said this gorgeous floral nose a freshly ground barley honeyed fruitcake and a flutter of sweet spices then lusciously smooth on the palate buttery vanilla caramel rich dates pear chutney and a building mouth-filling texture outstanding complexity with a balanced lengthy finish Closer to home, here's another really strongly performing whiskey, another 10-year-old one too, a gold medal winner with 98 points, Loch Lomond Whiskies, 10-year-old single malt Scotch whiskey. Overseeing the judging here, Richard Patterson OBE, and on the panel, Colin Hampton-White, Jim Beveridge, uh, Ludo Ducroch, and Billy Layton, and they said this, a fruit-driven nose showing tropical fruits, especially pineapple, combining with bonfire smoke aromas. Tropical fruits linger on the palate, where the gentle smoke is integrated, ending with a vanilla sweetness in the finish. Good malt character, estuary and fruity. Across to Jamaica next, a gold medal winning rum. Worthy Park Estate 109 rum won 96 points. 
Ian Burrell, the renowned rum expert and a former guest here on The Drinking Hour, overseeing the assessment process. And here's the tasting note. A dense and complex rum packed full of treacle and dark chocolate flavours with well-balanced soft oak tannins and some savoury leather notes on the very long and textured finish. And to a brandy next, winning a whopping 97 points, Miguel Torres, 15 Reserva Privada Brandy from a celebrated wine producer, of course, the Torres name, uh, one of the greatest in Spanish wine. And here's what the judges said about this gold medal winning 15-year-old brandy. Sophisticated, elegant nose of raisin, dark cacao and a subtle weave of leathery, savoury notes. Rounded and full on the palate, salted caramel and stewed fruits emerge alongside orange peel and honeycomb before a gorgeous finish of vanilla and clove. And finally, to China, a gold medal winning Baiju Gansu Binhe Food Industry. 12 years Binhe Baiju. Uh, the judges describe a powerful, full-bodied nose, rich with tarmac and clay notes. The palate is salty with flavours of burnt orange peel and roasted sesame seeds. This is focused, clean and well-balanced with clove and aniseed on the finish. And that's it, talking of finishes. Uh, a whistle-stop tour of some of the world's gold medal winning spirits. Before that, a whistle-stop tour of some of the world's worst wine faults, courtesy of the brilliant Dr Jamie Good. Uh, thanks to him and thanks to you for uh, listening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and my thanks to you for listening again. Uh, do join us next time. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.